Have you ever been to the Arctic? Have you ever worked in the Arctic? Have you ever even considered what an OT might do in the Arctic? Well, this episode is going to hopefully shed some light on that as I had the amazing Rachel Schooley come in and talk about her job doing exactly that. The Arctic OT. Uh, we discuss a lot of the challenges, benefits uh, of this very unique environment. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Yeah, so I was working um, in group homes for many years, kind of, you know, between my teens into my 20s, um, and had done a degree in sociology and women's studies. That was my undergraduate degree. My partner had just finished a degree in biology. Um, and was applying to become an OT and I had no idea what OT was at that time Um, and after a bit of investigation yeah it just seemed like all the parts of the job I already had that I loved the most really like finding things that were um, meaningful for folks that improve quality of life and uh, bring joy through activity Um, and so I thought I would apply as well and we actually ended up um, doing the OT program at the same time with a with a baby um, and it was great you know I learned a lot um, definitely opened my eyes to, to a lot of different parts of OT some some that really fit well with what I wanted to do with my life and others not so much but I think that's the beauty of the profession too is that you can kind of um, make it you fit with with what you're looking for in some circumstances others maybe not so much yeah yeah definitely and that's something i i try and tell people a lot is that ot isn't i don't view ot as sort of this unique well it is unique but this sort of very individualized profession it's kind of something that you combine with skills that you already have or experiences you've already had and then you turn it into whatever you want to be absolutely yeah and it's interesting because um you know my first year of our ot program and it's a, a master's level program in canada i guess probably all over the place it is um but I thought, like, what have I done? <laughs> because we're just doing, um, you know, anatomy courses. And like I said, Bachelor of Sociology and Women's Studies, like, never touched anatomy with the 10-foot pole. Um, <laughs> it's not, not, not many Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, no. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty intense. Like, we had three months to learn um, the entirety of it. And uh, I felt a little bit, like, my first placement was on, stroke rehab and I really did enjoy it I loved um and because I had the experience with the group homes I was trusted to do the transfers and and different parts of uh the placement that maybe if I were a fresh grad with no work experience I wouldn't have been able to do and so that was really great but my second placement uh student placement that I had was at um uh the AIDS committee of Kitchener Waterloo um and so working with folks that 
you know, were living um, with HIV and it was more of a systems level placement. So uh, less clinical work, but more looking yeah. at like, how are we informing the programming that's available to these folks and, and um, speaking to policymakers. And so that was like my first dose of, of systems level OT. And I loved it. And I loved the social justice components that, that I could dive into with OT. Um, and it kind of just snowballed from there. My next placement was with a hepatitis C clinic who I actually ended up working for after graduation. Um, they have an amazing okay. mobile health unit. And so, yeah. yeah. Wow. What's, I've never heard of an AT working on a hep clinic. What's, what's the OT's role on the Yeah, on the so um, the clinic itself, you know, it has the medical side of things. Um, but because, you know, the people that are most at risk for hepatitis C are those who um, you know, are using intravenous drugs and um, maybe unstably housed or or houseless. And so um, a big part of my role there was exploring. I mean, a big part of it was really exploring what OT does because there was no OT working there when I did my student placement. And so it was doing a lot of outreach with this incredible team, like dream team. And they had a mobile health unit that would go out when I was there, I think it was only once or twice a week in the evenings and they would literally meet people where they were at. So would go um, to various parks or whatever and provide, you know, harm reduction supplies, but also just necessities of daily living. And my role was like a slow, um, it was a slow rollout. So initially like gaining trust of folks, but then really like, there was one fellow who was just kind of like always tapping on things and, and got to know him a little bit and found out that he used to play the drums and really enjoyed playing the drums and found that was really soothing. And so like, I didn't need to talk about what occupational therapy was, right? Like that wasn't important, but how do I help facilitate access to this occupation that's meaningful yeah. for him? Um, yeah, and, and so that was kind of it. I, I did a bit of support coordination for them after graduation. Um, so not all specifically OT, but there was a lot of cognitive component too. And, um, you know, working with folks on this harm reduction idea of, okay, if you want to, you know, use less substance in your life, what, what can you do during that time that will be enjoyable for you and will make, you know, the, the reduction of substance use more attainable? Um, it was awesome. I loved that job. It was great. So that that harm reduction thing, as I assume, where you and yes, you yes, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, you know. I didn't. I until I listened to her episode with you, I didn't realize that she was, you know, the moderator for harm reduction OT or whatever the Facebook group is. Um, I remember that being kind yep. of an early connection for me with my old Facebook profile that. Yeah, I left behind a, a couple of years ago, but because um, I really at that time couldn't, I didn't have any connections of other OTs doing the work. And I remember even asking a rep from my college, like, how do I document my interactions with people when they don't trust enough to even give me their name, let alone their health card? You know, like, I don't need to know how. And they were like, well, 
if they're not giving you their name, like, are they really in a place where they should be getting occupational therapy services? And that struck me a lot as like, yeah, mm, yeah. maybe there needs to be a change in our profession a little bit because um, I think anybody could use occupational therapy services and everyone is deserving of them. Um, but especially folks who are super marginalized, like we have this ability to kind of assess the situation in a holistic way and, and figure out the best means of support moving forward. And it could be delegation, you know, like connecting the person to a social worker, connecting them to support coordination, connecting them to healthcare. Um, but I think, yeah, yeah, yeah I think OT, I'm, I'm glad to see it moving in that direction a little bit. And, I, you know, I've chatted with Rena a bit about it as well. Um, Cause it was a huge area of passion of mine before moving up here. And it remains a huge area of passion. It, it fits whatever geographical area you're in. So, yeah. So you made mention of it just then when you said moving up here, and that was one of the reasons why we, or why your account uh, on Instagram originally <laughs> caught my, my eye and what we originally connected over and uh, what I wanted to have a chat with you about. So your Instagram account is Arctic OT. And I was like, that sounds interesting. Uh, because I feel like the majority of the world, probably outside of your area of the world, when they think of the Arctic, they're either going to think of polar bears <laughs> or Santa. Um, so are, are you able to explain, I guess, why you are called the Arctic OT? Yeah, why? I'm, well, I mean, I, I guess I was looking for like a simple way um, to connect with other OTs um, and hoping really to connect with other OTs working in the circumpolar region um, because we're, you know, in in this entire region where I'm in right now, there's three of us um, and one is my partner um, and myself and, and then another fellow. And I think we're pretty limited in terms of OT support or um, the type of work that we're able to do. Um, and so I was really looking to connect with other people um, living and working in the circumpolar region uh, and ended up connecting with a bunch of people that don't, which is great too. I'm uh, really grateful for the connections. And I, I'm not great at Instagram. Like, I don't know that it was a super thought out handle or. I don't think, it, I don't think anyone. Is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read your little post. I think everyone's I, uh, just like. OT are doing terrible influencers. Can. And yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think I wanted an easy way to kind of explain where I am, um, the work I'm doing. I, you know, want to make it clear that I'm a settler. I'm not an Indigenous person living up here. And so um, my knowledge is limited but growing. I'm grateful to be learning quite a bit living up here. But yeah, so we've been here for about a year and a half now, not too long. Um, and and we live about, gosh, oh, I'm terrible with distances. We're about 250 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, I think. So it's about an kilometers or miles? Kilometers. Kilometers. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. So the, the real, <laughs> the real unit of measurement. <laughs> Sorry to the American OTs. Yeah. The, so, um. <laughs> yeah, we're about an hour and a half drive from the Arctic Ocean, and 
last summer, you know, because of pandemic, we, we didn't leave the territory. We stayed put, which was awesome. Um, but, you know, our beach day was at the Arctic Ocean, which is a bit different than any beach day that I've had before. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty special place. I can't actually even picture, a, coming from Australia, a beach day in the Arctic. Those They're like two things that I can't compute being put together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you if it's it's a sunny summer day, then you better hope it's windy because the bugs are like nothing I've ever experienced before. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, you're, some people swim. I have not swam, swam in the Arctic Ocean, but some people do. Um but it is, you still get that feeling of being close to the water and yeah. I still can't comprehend it. I don't know. Maybe I've just got a very concrete view of what a beach looks like and I can't. I'm going to have to Google it and look it up. <laughs> I'll send you, I'll send you a picture. It's rocky. Like it, it's yes. a rocky. Yeah. Oh, so it's not sand. Oh, we have some beaches that are like that. Some beaches that are made of like broken up coral and shells and rocks and that sort of stuff. They're not all like, they're not all like you see on postcards where they're like white right. sand and that kind of stuff. That's probably actually the, the well, not the minority, but not the, not all of them anyway. Right. So just to like, I guess, clear it up in my head, like where, and this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but where is the Arctic? Oh, where, where are is- you? Yeah, so there, I mean, there is kind of this Arctic circle that goes around our globe. Um, and so the circumpolar region or the, the Arctic regions are really, you know, this far north area um, of the Earth. And it runs through Canada and Europe and Russia, um, Alaska. And so, yeah, we're just above that. I don't know what the latitude or longitude i don't know those things but um yeah no no that's all right i just i just think i i get the feeling oh it's not that i get the feeling it's that i always thought that it was kind of like this separate landmass, like a little hat like right <laughs> on top of the earth where it actually it actually extends lower than that into a lot of the countries sort of up at up yes, that yes. way like into canada and russia and that sort of stuff so it does come a lot the the Arctic area or the Arctic Circle does come lower than I had originally thought. Yeah, a large part of Canada um, is within the Arctic Circle, and you know, unfortunately, it um, it gets quite overlooked. Like even within Canada, uh, I didn't know much about this area of the country, you know, long before moving up here, and. Um, which is a shame because it's a pretty incredible part of our culture. It's a pretty incredible um, part of the land. It's just really like nothing I've ever experienced before. And, and so really grateful to be up here and experiencing it and going to some pretty remote areas that I don't think I would have ever had the opportunity to go to if I weren't up here working as an OD. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I've, I've flown to islands, um, you know, that are in the kitchen, that are above the tree line. And it's just like, you're on a movie set for a different planet or something like it to not be, to not have any trees. 
and you can see so far, like, you know, and especially if it's snow covered, like you really feel like you're on the moon or something. I don't know. I've never been on the moon, but that's what I imagine. And the lighting is so beautiful. Like it can be really eerie, especially during polar night when the sun doesn't come up above the horizon. Um, and for us, that's a period of about 30 days where we don't have them. But there's still that twilight. And so the hours of the day where we do have daylight, there's this kind of like, yeah, it's a really beautiful lighting. And then in the summer, we have the midnight sun. And so the sun doesn't set for about, gosh, like 50 days. Um, and yeah, not those all. are some pretty incredible, like 2 a.m. skies. Yeah, at all. It does not set. It stays above the horizon. Mm-hmm. So and so like even thinking about how it never people... goes below. Wow. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, at the peak of it, it doesn't even really get that low. Like I have pictures of the sun taken up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. at the peak of midnight sun time where it's still well above. Like it's, it's like midday sun shining very bright can make it very hard to sleep. Um, you know, and that's something that I've learned a lot as an OT up here are things like this that I've never thought about, but like, how does polar night or midnight sun impact a person's occupation? Like sleep, of course, but anything else, there's just a different timeline in in general where um, in the summer folks can be out hunting or out on the land and sleep isn't really something that they worry about. Like they could just continue on with their day because the days continue on and on and on without a break um, for a very long time. And so even like the structure of our society um, plays like it, I don't know, it plays out a little bit differently. Like there's just not, there's not this nine to five mentality because that's not the reality. Um, I mean, there, there are nine to five systems and structures because that we, we live within a, you know, a colonial system and adhere to the structures of everywhere else. But um, I think for people here, you know, that doesn't always work. And, and hopefully, and especially with the pandemic, you know, there have been opportunities. We had incredible programming um, with the Anuvialui and Gwich'in governments up here where they received funding to essentially send people out onto the land to their camps um, with with the first wave of COVID-19. And so people were able to get back to their whaling camps and their their hunting camps for the first time in a really long time. Um, And it's a really, you know, it impacted their well-being and and mental health in such positive ways to be able to reconnect to the land um, And so that's been super influential as well for me as an OT who doesn't really have that background. Like I, sure, I have gone to college. I enjoy being out in the forest or whatever, but this very strong connection that exists up here, especially such a foreign land to me, um, has been really interesting and, and um, like such an honor to be able to kind of witness and learn from. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a really, it's a really amazing so, place. It sounds so different. And what you were saying about how it's kind of like, I guess the, 
the daylight hours because kind of restructured how society operates. That aspect of it is fascinating to me. So is it like, obviously for the times when the sun goes down, like if you don't have a, you know, a a nine to five type job, there's really no structure to when you would be asleep and when you would be awake. Does that, doesn't that throw, I would imagine that would sort of throw a lot of the general, you know, social organization out the window. Like even in Australia here, for example, uh, you know, shops are open, you know, whatever their time, say, let's say, just say nine to five. And for a lot of people, so that's the period when they would go out and when they would do errands and that sort of stuff. I'm assuming. Is it? Is there any kind of structure other? Obviously, the daylight isn't giving you any uh, time constraints on on when to to do things. Is there anything that that is like? Are the shops only open? Yeah, well, for certain, I mean, for certain hours and that kind of stuff. No, everything is still running kind of as usual. Um, but it's interesting, you know. And I don't want to speak too much to like the indigenous experience for folks up here because I'm not, that's not my conversation to have, but I do wonder about like the structure of just kind of staying alive on this land for millennia, um, you know, and during the, the times when it wasn't a colonized space, like hunting and trapping and cutting wood and, staying alive required a lot of structure and so I don't think that um the daylight hours you know I think there were you know it it definitely things are changing but also the occupations in the winter are so different than the occupations in the summer Um, and for folks who you know whose ancestors have been here for millennia like I think there's a real um there's a real knowledge of just how to operate up here and what needs to be done. But um, I'll be supporting some land-based programming in a couple of weeks, actually, um, where really like the occupation, the occupational components of it are like, how do we stay alive when it's minus 40 and we're out on the tundra with canvas mm. tents? Like, okay, we hunting and trapping we need to be making fires we need to be tending to the tents like all of these different things that I'll be learning about as I go because I really don't um I don't know (laughs) I don't like I I would be useless on my own and so um I think the structure that um that we would assume kind of like, oh my gosh, okay, well, if there's no daylight, you could just sleep the day away. But that's not, that's not inherent for folks here. I think that it's kind of like in their blood to be um, working pretty hard to survive. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, to witness. And like I said, I, I think I, I think a lot of people here who have come from the South, um, there are a lot of government employees that work up here, uh, teachers, people that work at the hospital, but there's a lot to learn from the folks who um, have lived up here and their families have lived up here for generations uh, because, you know, 
I think otherwise we'd be, we'd be pretty screwed for lack of a better term. Yeah. I can't even comprehend negative 40, by the way. I just had a look at like what the temperature is here <laughs> today and it's like 30. So that's like 70 degrees less than it's going to be here today. That I, yeah, I can't even <laughs> comprehend that. That's ridiculous. I don't know how people could. Yeah, it's- I would, I would not. I would live in a heater. Yeah, you know, I um, historically have been a pretty big baby about the cold and like any sort of weather. Um, And so moving up to the Arctic and we have two dogs. So like there is no option. We have to be outside daily Um, and for our kids as well, (laughs) like just being out and just like, you feel like, a, you feel like, okay, everyone else is outside and people are skidooing all over the place. Like, you know, they've got their snowmobiles and they're going up to camps and they're doing things outside in this weather. Um, you learn pretty quickly the right gear that you need to have. Um, cause it's a beautiful landscape. It's a beautiful space. And like being outside in that weather, uh, it's pretty dry up here. So there isn't a ton of humidity, which really helps. Um, and if there isn't wind, it's it's doable you can you can be outside and it's it's okay but uh the wind will get you (laughs) because i remember seeing video i remember seeing videos years and years ago of someone like outside in like that temperature and like throwing a glass of water in the air and it just turning to mist like it's just yeah yeah, i've seen i haven't done that yet that's cold (laughs) <laughs> it is pretty cold it is pretty cold yeah you'll you'll have to come up sometime so the i will i it's it's definitely on my to-do list i'm not opposed to experiencing it i don't know how i would cope living there it might take me a little while to adjust um especially given that our seasons are opposite so if i got on the plane here it would be summer yes. uh so it would probably yeah. be 35 to 40 <laughs> So it'd probably be an eighty degree difference by the time yeah. I get off the plane. Um, so yeah, with the, lived, the whole daylight. I lived in Uruguay. Uh, the, oh really? Yeah, I lived in Uruguay for a few years, and like would come home for visits um, during our summer, and then head back there would be winter, and vice versa. And I remember like that those plane rides were always really like jarring like <laughs> just because you leave one hemisphere yeah yeah but you could do it rock um, yeah, that's debatable but we could try <laughs> um so with the whole uh the obviously very different sort of i guess daylight situations compared to a large portion of the rest of the world how does that affect your work like does your work still follow a structure or do you essentially just have to make yourself available when the people that you work with are available or how does that impact you as a as a therapist yeah so um well I I was working at the hospital here um up until last week actually and so that I was still kind of doing an 8.30 to 5 day. Like that's when our services were available. And so you access them during that time or you don't. Um, and, you know, like I said, like folks still just go on with their their lives. It looks a little bit different when there's no light out. Um, 
but it's still like a bustling town that uh, things don't really shut down. And so, yeah, that was, I kept on with my regular schedule there. Um, moving into kind of this free agency that I'm going into and supporting different programming. Um, moving forward, it will be, you know, like I'm going out to this camp for two weeks and I will be there for two weeks, um, day and night. We'll be out on the land. And so I think that will provide me an opportunity to see, like, what it, what is the difference between um, daylight or not. We'll do another camp in the summer. I'll get to see it then. I think, like, for my own understanding as an OT, it's shifted things a little bit because you can't really apply um, like sleep hygiene when the sun is not going down and somebody doesn't have a curtain, right? Like you need to think a little bit differently than, okay, well, listen to calming music and like keep the same routine every night. Some of those things are helpful, but um, other times, like I found up here more than, I mean, actually any job that I've had, but up here, especially like I've learned so much from my clients and being client centered looks a lot different because I've had to learn an entirely different way of life. Um, and mostly because of a, the land and B the, the daylight hours. So one thing you just said then was like uh, looking a bit at sleep hygiene. Do you still, even though the sun doesn't go down at certain times of year, do you still call it night just for, I guess, continuity? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, and different people will follow it differently. Like I think um, folks who are able to kind of get out hunting um, or get out to their camps in the summertime, like it may be a couple of days that they're, that they're up or if, you know, you just have a week to try to provide for your family for the next year. You're not going to sleep much during that time. Um, and I know, like, personally, my own mental health was really impacted. The polar night was one thing. Like, I've, you know, I've dealt with depression in the winter times before. Um, and then moving up here, because I ha I've had those experiences before, I was like, okay, I need to get a happy lamp. I need to have a lot of vitamin D. I need to, like, have a routine and structure. Um, but I think, you know, there's the things that you should do and there are the things that you don't do. And last winter was, was pretty tough um, at a few different points where, yeah, I really felt like there was just no sun. Like I didn't, there was no light. And so I learned quite a bit, mostly that like I need to be outside every day, whether it's minus 40 or not. That's been hugely helpful yeah. um, this winter. But the sun, like the summer um, impacted me even more. Cause I really, um, I can deal with noise when I'm sleeping. Like I, and I can go back to sleep pretty easily if I'm woken up, but like the light and I, we have, um, blackout blinds, but even just like the smallest crack and that light is coming in and it's like midday sun, like it's bright, bright light. Um, that was really difficult. And I'm trying to, I'm still trying to figure out like, okay, how do I prepare myself for that this coming summer? Um, and I'm sure compounded with a lot of things like, you know, global pandemic, there's a lot of that could have, you know, impacted my mental health over the summer. But, you know, I think about that experience. And then I think about some of the folks that I'm working with and, and supporting and um, insomnia is like a 
a big issue for a lot of the folks that I've worked with. Um, and I still don't really have the answer as to like, okay, how do we, how do we support people who are experiencing that? Uh, because I've experienced it myself and like tried my best to OT myself. I, yeah. And still don't really know like yeah. what is, what is the answer for that? And maybe just biologically, we're not programmed to be sleeping when it's light 24 hours a day. I don't know. Yeah. Just because I have no idea. What is a happy lamp? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it's like, well, sometimes they're called sad lamps, I guess, but I like happy lamp better. Um, so it just gives you that UV light that the sun would provide. And so, um, okay. like, I, and this has been, I've heard about it in other areas of Canada, like for Canadian winter as well, when it gets kind of dark, but up here, it's definitely like, yeah, a lot of people have them, um, just to give you that light that you need. I would think that happy lamp is much better marketing than sad lamp. Like, why would you <laughs> I think lamp? so, too. I think that so, does, too. That doesn't it's, make me want to It's funny, my one. kids in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Like, it makes you it makes you happy. My kids in the morning, that's, like, the first thing they do is they want to run and turn on the sun. Um, and it's just so, like, it's shining yeah. so bright in their little faces because it needs to be, like, pretty close. But uh, I think it does help. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, I think like biologically we're programmed. Well, actually, it'd be interesting, I think, uh, to compare, I guess, how people that or like cultures that have grown up in those situations differ from the rest of the world in terms of like from my understanding of it, and it's by no means completely, you know, infallible, but uh, my understanding is that we're biologically program to you know when the sun goes down we get tired we go to sleep when and that's one of the issues with mm -hmm. the people are, are identifying around the world nowadays is that um people staring at their phones and stuff before they go to bed is giving this sort of false uh light input that is keeping us awake uh and making it harder for us to get to sleep and that kind of thing so i'd be interested to see if uh, and I'm not sure what the native. They're not are they Inuits, the native culture. Up there? Uh, yeah. So oh, the so uh, yeah. So in Canada, I think like you know the general term is indigenous, and then there um, is the yeah. First Nations group, and then the Inuit. And so up here we have um, Inuit. They're the uh, Inuvialuit people. And then also Gwich'in, who are First Nations or Dene people. Um, and there are Métis people. There are, you know, it's a very multicultural town, actually. But I think, yeah, the, the Indigenous groups um, up here and the governments up here are Nuvialuit and Gwich'in. Okay. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, yeah. say, like what the First Nations response is, like whether it's uh, programmed essentially completely different in them because they've, you know, grown up or lived in those situations for however many millennia um, compared to, you know, most of the world where the sun does actually go down at some point during the day. Uh, yeah. Or if it's just something that, like, like you said, like you've identified and, and it is very, you know, a well-known thing around the world that 
your vitamin D or sunlight or that sort of natural routine of the world has a big impact on your mental health, especially your your, your mood, like your usually depression, that kind of stuff. Um, whether that's just something that they, yeah, I don't know, tolerate or manage. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I I do have to wonder if it's something that was um, managed differently, like before these kind of colonial structures and systems were in place, right? Like when folks had the freedom to kind of um, move with the daylight and do what they needed to do when they needed to do it. Because now we do have a couple of generations of folks who, you know, people who have been in residential school, um, people who have kind of been been forced to follow colonial structures and um I wonder like I just when we're talking about this right now like I wonder um when I when I'm meeting with people that are dealing with insomnia um like would that be the case if there wasn't this expectation to meet this like nine to five timeline for folks um yeah I don't know. Cause I, I mean, obviously yeah. there, you know, there's um, pretty intense, like mental health issue. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma up here. The last residential school up here actually, or the, re- the only residential school up here closed in 1996. So I was 11 okay. when the residential school here closed, um, which to me is just mind boggling. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm hopeful kind of as an OT, like exploring this kind of like decolonization of healthcare because I worked in a colonized healthcare setting up here. Um, and it's not, it's not great. It's not really meeting the needs. And I think about schools, like I worked, I work in schools as an OT up here as well as so we're kind of generalists. Um, but you've got these yep. kids who, especially in, you know, the northern or more remote communities um, that are growing up with family until the age of five and and the life with family and being out on the land and the structure of the day is so different. And then they're expected at five to go to school and listen and wait and follow these timelines that have kind of been implemented. But um, and then as OTs, we get all of these referrals for kids who can't pay attention. They can't focus. They can't um, meet these expectations, but really like, I do have to wonder if that speaks to um, issues with the system uh, and expecting these kids to kind of adhere as opposed to really focusing on like inclusive schooling, um, accessible schooling and culturally safe schooling for kids. Um, And so I, I think like, Moving yeah. away from the hospital structure and towards this kind of land-based programming as an OT, it's hopeful to think about like there are no separations. Um, but like, how can it for a, a change in things in order for there to be more? Um, inclusion and respect of these like you know cultural practices that have been in place for for millennia um 
Yeah, it's been really, it's been really interesting. And I'm still learning, like, <laughs> it's all very new to me. Um, but yeah, it has me thinking quite a bit about like, when I talk about daylight and how it impacts occupation, but like, I don't know if that's the main thing that's impacting occupation for folks up here. Like, I think the main thing yeah. is this yeah. expectation to be at work by 9am, but really that's that doesn't really work up here like that you know when it's still pitch black until 2 p.m and then maybe you get like a little bit of twilight for an hour or so so yeah see i I, as someone who uh probably struggles with sleep anyway uh and has to put a lot of conscious effort into trying to maintain a good sleep habit. Uh, I don't. I honestly can't see how I personally would cope in that situation. Like uh, a lot of the time, mm. it, that sort of natural sort of daylight routine is all I've got to try and maintain any kind of sleep habit so i i the daylight the constant daylight part i feel like i could probably manage because you can uh you know like you like you said you've got blackout curtains you can make a false night time if you if you need to but i think the constant darkness aspect of it uh which i assume would be the is that during the winter or the summer that would be the winter during the winter. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, I think the constant yeah, darkness the aspect of it. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, you know, and that's what I thought too. <laughs> then I moved up here and uh, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't that way. Like I found winter to be um, more manageable and it's cozy. Like people kind of go to these like leisure occupations um and so there is like a lot of sewing and crafting and cooking and like just this general coziness about winter time that for me and I think it's probably a very personal thing as well like for me that is um more manageable than you know in summer it's just really hard to turn off and even if you have blackout blinds like the rest of your house is bright until you know it's time to go to bed um but I think everybody has their own you know the thing that works best for them or works better for them anyway but it's been an interesting thing to experience for sure because I mean even just that routine like that throws out pretty much every other habit or routine that most people have uh there's no sort of natural cues for when you need to wake up other than this arbitrary like you said uh you need to be at work by nine o'clock which when the whole 24 hours is daylight 9 a.m becomes kind of arbitrary Uh, it doesn't mean a lot there's other than if you're the only thing I could think of would it would it would work well to shift that time slot if you worked in a job that sort of interacted with people in other time zones then you could sort of match your work to their time zone and it wouldn't make much difference um sure, but yeah. yeah having a sort of 
having a nine to five sort of job when all day is daylight. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I I think I'd have to experience it to sort of really get my head around it, but I just can't see how it wouldn't have a massive impact on literally and something that's so similar. Like, yeah, okay, the daylight. Like, that's all we're talking about is daylight. With that, such a massive impact on literally every single thing that you do, every, and even on a biological level. Like, I could imagine that uh, just, especially with uh, any sort of Western cultured people living in that area um who either you know haven't been living in that situation for thousands of years uh, or even have just recently moved up there i would imagine the impact on their mental health would be massive mm. especially if the especially because it would take a while one to adjust and find things like a happy lamp uh that yeah. actually would help uh to maintain their mental health i i i mean when we have issues sort of in winter here and we lose maybe oh i would guess we lose maybe an hour and a half of daylight uh during winter compared to summer here right. uh which is you know compared to the 12 hours that you lose uh is rather minuscule and we notice a difference so i could only imagine uh, like mental health services up there being absolutely swamped. Yeah. But you know, may, maybe maybe people there are just better equipped um, for that. I'm I'm not sure. The insomnia thing's interesting though, because that's not something I would have ever thought of. Even though it makes perfect sense when you actually say it out loud, um, it's not something I would have gone. Oh yeah, that'll definitely be an issue. Because I guess it's not something that I really come across very often in my sort of uh, ever in my career, really, insomnia, um, other than maybe mm-hmm. some kind of medication side effect. Uh, it, it's not something that I've ever really worked with or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's not n- totally new to me. I think working... Um, in jobs if people who are unstably housed like sleep is not a commodity you know sleep is so fundamental to everybody but is um you know seems to be a privilege for some because I think um there are folks that aren't safe to sleep there are folks that aren't housed properly to sleep um and up here there there's a lot of that I think there's a lot of um you know, the trauma that people have experienced um, can definitely play into insomnia. So when you, you know, when you're having nightmares, when you really are afraid to go to sleep, that will contribute to insomnia as well. Um, And so from a mental health perspective, and I am like my background, um, kind of beyond working for the hepatitis C clinic after graduation, I worked for Canadian Mental Health Association, which is a, a national Um, public mental health um, provider and so uh, working as an OT within that um, yeah I've definitely come across you know insomnia as an issue before and I think there are some you know different modalities for treating insomnia I've not really come across any that have been super effective for folks Um, 
Okay. And it's kind of like a, like a, yeah. Like how do we reduce the impacts of the insomnia that you're experiencing and support a person enough so that they feel safe to sleep? Like that's, that's kind of, um, been my approach up here and I'm sure other OTs have much more uh, experience with, you know, working with folks dealing with insomnia, but yeah, it's been an interesting, like something that I faced for the first time in my life living up here. Like I've always been able to sleep. I love sleep. I could sleep until noon every day if, <laughs> if I had a chance, but like it really was that light. Like I, you know, and even just, you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and it's like full sunlight right in your face. Right. Like it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a different thing, but I think there are probably many reasons why folks are having, yeah, that's right. Just aluminum foil over all of the windows and I'm sure uh, we'd make a good impression on our neighbors. Or live in a cave with no windows or something. <laughs> yeah it doesn't it doesn't sound half bad actually so wh- when the summertime comes no it, that's probably the extent that or the the lengths that i would have to go to to be able to function i feel like uh, maybe i'm just precious i don't know maybe i'm starting to feel like i'm a little <laughs> delicate after after hearing what other people actually have to just tolerate just to live day to day so I don't know. So you, what you said you're working partly with in schools. What what is your actual sort of role up there in the Arctic at the moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> well because I'm I'm in a sort of transition state right now. Um, I can speak to the job that I was in probably um, first because that was a really interesting position. Um, So it was, you know, and like I said, I'm, I'm a mental health OT. Like all of my work experience has been mental health. Most of my student focus was on mental health. Um, And then I came up here and, and started work as a generalist. And so like really, working with babies to elders and everything in between for all sorts of reasons, working in acute care, long-term care, home care, schools, outpatients, mental health, all of the things, group homes. Um, So it was a challenge. It really was. And it really also um, showed me that I was probably on the right track with mental health OT. That's, that's where my passion is. And, um, and, you know, substance use as well. Like I'm really, I'm really uh, passionate about that area. I I really found a love for home care though. That was great because it's mostly like you're going in and visiting with elders and, um, you know, trying to make life easier for them, which was a lot of fun. Um, But I got to, you know, like some weeks commute to work on this tiny little six seater plane um we go you know so twice a year we have to go um or we get to go to the smaller communities uh in the Beaufort Delta region and so each OT there's three there are three of us and each OT has um four communities that you are looking after everybody in this community you know from an OT perspective um 
and many of those are, I mean, there aren't a lot of roads to where you need to go here. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of little plane rides on small planes. Um, my partner is terrified of flying. And so it's been very good exposure therapy for him to be on a tiny little plane that's hit some, you know, it could get pretty rocky up here with the wind. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but um so sometimes it's going to health centers in these communities and kind of seeing people, seeing people in their homes, seeing people in schools. Um, I tried to do a lot of community education around like what occupational therapy is and especially what mental health occupational therapy is because, um, you know, we've had some brilliant occupational therapists work up here. And I think there's been a lot of hard work put into developing an understanding of OT um, because unfortunately, like the, the hospital or like the healthcare system that we work within, um, maybe doesn't really recognize the value of OT or, um, the potential of, of the things that we can do. So they're like, I did orthotics for the first time in my professional career. We, I don't even think we learned about orthotics in school. Um, wow. but it was like a lot okay. of that, a lot of <laughs> like compression stocking man or measurement, a lot of like equipment, really, really basic, like old school OT stuff that I never, I mean, yeah, never really touched. Um, and so that was a learning experience, but also just, you know, really trying to advocate for our profession and what we could be doing. Um, and I think that, you know, there was some buy into that and I, I can see some changes being made kind of from the top down, but um, ultimately like seeing the potential of what could be done from an OT perspective up here led me to, to leave that position. Um, and so I'll be moving into supporting right now. It's looking like a lot of land-based programming. Um, so for trauma treatment, um, it's on the land healing camps some of them are called and so working with adults um who are you know potentially using substances or struggling with their mental health um and moving the treatment out on the land um which is really amazing and kind of this like two-eyed seeing approach like you have this western approach and sure I have the skills that I've um, accumulated over however many years of being an OT and studying these things that are helpful, yeah. they're useful, right? And but then we also have this indigenous way of knowing and being that um, is really the most powerful thing for indigenous people to to receive healthcare within. And so, like we're talking about meeting people where they're at, like that's, that's really what it is, like moving it away from the institutions and the hospitals and back to the land. Um, and like I said, that's, that's a pretty new endeavor for me. Like I just got the, the list of things that I need to bring to this camp and I'm very underprepared, um, you know, cause like I don't have half <laughs> the warm, the cold weather gear. Uh, I'll get it. It's fine. But um, yeah, yep. Yeah, like I think it's exciting to think about how occupational therapy. Actually, I was listening to um, a webinar. There's like a national um, Indigenous health webinar that's put on 
uh, right now it's every week just around COVID. Um, but it, there was a psychologist talking about using land-based lessons to like promote mental well-being during times of COVID and for the more urban areas. Like if you're in lockdown, what does the land teach you about maintaining wellness? And it's that, that idea of like structure. Okay. You have to get up in the morning. You have to move your body. You have to chop wood. You have to feed yourself healthy food. You have to keep yourself warm. But like all of that is kind of very occupational um, and occupation based. And so um, exploring like how can OT support these programs what are the barriers for folks to accessing land-based healing um, what are the barriers for folks of implementing land-based learning into their daily lives back in town like when they return from camp how can they kind of maintain this momentum um, because everybody I talk to that has been out on the land, whether it's a client or a coworker, like that time is healing for them. Um, and I haven't experienced it, you know, to that extent myself. And I don't have the same tie to it as um, many of my Inuvialuit and Gwich'in friends here do, because that's in their blood. Like that is generations upon generations of connection to this very particular land. But it, as an OT, like if I yeah, can help yeah. to facilitate communities, um, I think that's pretty exciting. And I think it's really fitting. Like it makes a lot of sense um, to use occupational therapy in this way. So I'm so excited. I mean, I'm very honored um, to have been invited to contribute to this programming and so excited to see kind of how it pans out. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of learning on, on my behalf and um hopefully I can share some of like the skills and just the benefits of OT for folks that I don't think up here have really had access to that because OT has been used in such a old school way for the most part yeah yeah it's a very a very very medical model way so far by the sounds of it Yes, so 100%. You, you mentioned you mentioned before about catching the little tiny plane, which already gives me heebie-jeebies, uh, out to <laughs> remote, like really remote sort of communities, but only a couple times a year. Is that the like the extent of the, the services that they have access to? Just those oh. very like couple times a year? Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Folks either have to come to Inuvik, so we're kind of like one of the hubs of healthcare. Um, if they're needing service, or there's telehealth, where I mean, you know how our internet conversation has been functioning so far. So I think you can only imagine how telehealth works or does not work up here. Um, but I think you know, COVID nineteen has really shown that like healthcare needs to be more accessible to these remote communities because not only do they need to come to Inuvik for healthcare, um, for major, you know, healthcare needs like certain operations and treatments, they need to go into the fire of COVID-19. So like um, Edmonton, Alberta is the closest place for a lot of these folks to receive um, the hot spots of COVID-19. So I've had a lot of clients who 
you know, really got chronic pain injections really, really help. And I need to go into like a place that's actually very dangerous for me to go right now to get the treatment that I need. Um, and I think this is kind of like when I started work up here and started realizing the lack of access to healthcare and even pretty basic things like OT, um, you know, the school kids that really could benefit from that extra support. Like if they live in one of these remote communities, they're only being seen twice a year. Um, and that's kind of where like the colonial system of healthcare has probably failed the North. It hasn't probably, it has failed the North because it's so inaccessible to receive the services that you need. Um, and even in Inuvik, it can be really, really difficult. But then when you move to, you know, these smaller communities that are fly-in only and they have a nurse that's, you know, maybe a couple of nurses that are at the health center all the time. Um, and then people, doctors are only coming in and out, you know, OT, PT, SLP, like we're, we're there a couple times a year. And otherwise, it's up to it's up to them to travel to make appointments or um, get the healthcare that they need. So, yeah, that's been pretty eye opening for me. Um, and I think that's honestly, it's not an Arctic specific thing. I think that's the case for a lot of folks who are living in remote areas of the country that um, healthcare can be pretty inaccessible. Um, but yeah. yeah, up here it's been yeah pretty evident yeah it's um i think that's something that we experience here in australia as well i was just curious as to how much because i think in australia there there is a real it's still probably not enough but there really is an emphasis on trying to get a lot of outreach services to those really remote areas those really remote communities but there's still this especially some sort of specific medical care and that kind of stuff there's obviously some services that we can fly out like we can fly out ot's and physios and speeches and um there's i've seen like dentists who operate out of trucks that travel around to all rural areas mm. and really remote areas and that kind of stuff but there's some really specific care like a lot of uh you know stuff like cancer care and that kind of stuff that requires you know tons literally tons of equipment that you just can't transport to those really remote areas so there's definitely still barriers to access some healthcare uh when you live in those real really really rural areas but i think uh, here anyway i can't speak for the whole of australia but i know in queensland where i used to work for the the state health department um they do do a fair bit of outreach and they do have a lot of um like permanent healthcare settings probably sound similar to like where you are currently where they're sort of in those not really remote but those sort of rural centers um that again mm -hmm. tries to service those rural areas as best or sorry those really remote areas uh as best that they can so uh, there's definitely something that i can relate to here i mean i, our I think canada is probably a bit bigger but they're, they're still two very large countries with a lot of 
a lot of land which creates a lot of uh, isolated remote communities. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of desert, yeah. you've got a lot of ice, so... <laughs> <laughs> there's, there actually, yeah, there's a there's bit of desert. natural barriers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting, the, like... The Arctic um, is a desert, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because, like, I think it also speaks to, for folks living up here, you know, like, there will be professionals that come up from the south and maybe they live here for a year or two on a contract and then they leave and so and then a new person comes up um, and so you have these healthcare professionals coming into your community twice a year and maybe the next time they come in it's a totally different person than the person you just told your entire story to and started a plan with and so um, it makes it even less accessible and something that we've talked about in part of the um, Occupational Therapy Indigenous Health Network here in Canada, um, just an incredible group of people that, you know, have really been exploring like accessibility of OT as a profession for folks up here. And I think um, lovely OT uh, on Instagram, Nancy had, you know, made a really excellent detailed post about this a couple of weeks ago just like representation in our profession um and the amount of BIPOC OTs that we have probably globally is is really um yeah it's really like disgraceful we just don't have the representation that we need and I've often thought you know and initially when I moved up here I thought like okay well what is it is it the cost of university like could we start a scholarship but the fact of the matter is um, the nearest school that provides OT programming is like 2000 kilometers away. Um, that's the, you know, the cultural differences between up here and the nearest school and the city that that is, they're vast, right? And the family, the family structures up here are very different as well. We've got multi-generational families and people that are very invested in caring for their loved ones. And so, um, I think that OT as a profession, like the education component needs to be more accessible for us to see better representation. Cause like what a dream it would be for Inuvialuit, Gwich'in, Métis students who grew up here, know the land, know the people would be invested in their community cause they have been for their entire lives um, to be able to do remote learning up here. Like I don't, and you know, with COVID, like why not? Why couldn't it happen? Because, I mean, yeah, yeah. education's been for the last year. Um, but I think that's a big part of the issue as well. Like, yeah, we're only doing these trips twice a year, but then the turnover of the people who are doing the trips also makes the healthcare really inaccessible. You have to start over again completely. The teachers are rotating constantly. Yeah, like, it's just yeah. the continuity of care is really lacking. And that's the, it's hard because it is a hard job, but you kind of need, uh, ideally, you want people that are originally from that area because they're more likely to stay in that area. And I think that's, yeah. it's interesting because the, the, the university that I currently work at is essentially exactly what you're asking for. So I am about, uh, 1700 kilometers. No, that's Cairns. But, Around, but somewhere about 1500 kilometers from the capital city, which originally was the only OT course in the state. I believe my course where I work and I, where I went, 
was the second in the state. Now there's like eight or something. Um, but essentially it was set up as a, like Townsville, the city. I mean, it's a small city, regional city. Uh, but the course up here at this university is designed to essentially create how well for our OT course designed to create OTs that are specially not, I guess, designed to service this area. So, you know, we do a lot of. We have a, a relatively high Indigenous Australian population compared to the rest of the state um, up this way, and we do a lot more coursework, I feel, than other universities around the cultural differences and, uh, you know, being able to work and, and, and tolerate working in a, a rural or remote location. So I think what we have here is exactly what you're talking about in that it makes the access to an OT course much more or much easier for people that, you know, have grown up in North Queensland, who live in North Queensland, who want to stay in North Queensland, and when they graduate, hopefully they will stay in North Queensland and service the population's in the unique settings that North Queensland presents compared to like the capital cities and that kind of thing. So um, that's one thing I think we've, we have actually got, which is, which is good. Uh, And I can tell you that it it, it seems to work. A lot of our graduates do stay in like the areas that they grew up in, which is, you know, North Queensland's a pretty big area. Like it's probably uh, 600 Ks sort of, square i guess um but you know so we have students that come down from Cairns, up from Mackay, you know they come they come from the west they come from mount isa that sort of stuff and the majority of them will either go back to the place they grew up and work there there's a lot of the people that i graduated with that are still in north queensland um but again it's an ot course so they're not bound to it they still have the option if they wanted to go and work overseas a lot of people that i I graduated with did go and work overseas for a bit um even i moved away when i first graduated i moved to the big city and sort of got that experience and surprise surprise ended up back here uh so that's that theory does work like i mean we've got there's there's a quite a few regional universities smaller universities in australia that are designed to create graduates that service those regions uh and the the courses are generally tailored to depending on what the course is but generally tailored to the population or the the geographic area or whatever it is that will enable graduates to specifically be able to work really well in those areas so that that theory does definitely does work and we've we've got lots of proof uh, around australia from our our more regional universities amazing that's that's so great to hear and we should definitely connect further around that just um yeah i think there are some you know like ot researchers in canada who 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 are looking into this like how do we make this a reality but how cool to hear that it's been implemented where you are with success and like results because it can, yeah, like it yeah. makes a lot yeah. of sense, and it it does. I I think the one I think I 
The one thing I think what you were talking about before is uh, talking about getting more First Nations people through the courses. I think that's something that still needs improvement uh, here in Australia. Uh, It would definitely do the profession wonders uh, on terms of diversity and uh, I guess accessibility to a wider breadth of population to uh, support more, uh, support getting more First Nations people into courses like OT and that kind of stuff. I mean, we it does happen, and there is a lot of support and a lot of um, what would you call them, uh, like pathways into university. Um, <laughs> there are like a variety of pathways into university that is aimed at trying to uh, increase the number of First Nations people. Uh, but it's one of those things I, th- I think there's always going to be room for improvement. Um, so yeah. that's that's probably, yeah. I think, would be the, the next step. Like we've got the university. I mean, the university's been here for a number of years, but I think the OT course is 20 years old now at JCU. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I think I graduated in the first half of that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's always room for improvement and there's always going to be room for improvement. Uh, and I think as long as we're, uh, aiming and trying to improve and actually actively doing something to try and improve that, then, you know, that's, that's progress. Unfortunately, it's very slow progress, but progress is progress in a lot of instances. And I think this is something we just need to continually trying to be trying to improve and trying to, to keep getting better at because I do see the value um, in having First Nations practitioners uh, in in especially in areas like this where we do have like a, a large larger than state average population of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in here in North Queensland. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, um, well, you know, and there's some really amazing, like, there are things that we can kind of do, but then also to lift up certain organizations that are Indigenous-led, like Inuit-led, First Nations-led. There's some really cool work being done up here for youth, and like Western Arctic Youth Collaborative, um, Arctic Youth Development uh, Agency, um, where they're really, like, okay, like listening to the youth, what do the youth want? Like, how do they, how do they foresee themselves getting there? And so um, I think a lot of that work is already being done. Um, But just like, how do we, how do we as OTs amplify, you know, the work that's already being done and add our, add our voices and support? Um, Because like I said, like for me, initially, I was like, oh, it's just, let's start a scholarship. Like if it's just about money, but um, there's a lot to learn of what it's really about. And um, I think that there's some really good like agencies that are on the ground doing the work to make things more um, accessible and successful for folks, for kids, you know. Um, but it would be, yeah, it would be cool to see like application of the program that you're doing, like the work that you're doing. Uh, in a Canadian context, in Northern Canadian context, we have a local um, college, Aurora College, um, like a satellite site up here in Inuvik. And so like, 
why couldn't we do distance learning with an OT, you know, component? Why couldn't it be a part of the job responsibility for the OTs that work here to have like students shadow them? Like there are a lot of things that could be done um, to assist with that continuity of care that doesn't really currently exist. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. This happens at least once an episode. <laughs> this isn't. This Sorry, isn't new. take a sip of my tea. I was like, I had a, I had a really good question, and then uh, it's gone. come back to you. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. What was it? We were talking about universities. Um, we were talking about like slow improvement. Oh, yes, I got it. <laughs> I remembered. So you you were talking about uh, like supporting programs that were either starting or already running, and I think that's a really important point because I feel like a lot of OTs, and maybe it's due to the isolated nature that we sometimes end up working in ourselves, feel like. We have to kind of reinvent the wheel. We have to do everything ourselves. We have to start everything ourselves uh, when it really isn't the case. And quite often, we're not the best people to actually be starting things or driving things. Yeah. But we can be we can be super, super helpful and super, super supportive for people that are uh, or programs that are already running or starting up or in a better position to drive a certain program uh, and we can be there to support add an ot lens add any uh you know clinical support that they might need to do so because quite often these programs are run by ngos or community organizations and that sort of stuff um and i just think it's an important point that you were making that ot's uh, i just wanted to highlight it that you know we're not always the best people to be to to be driving these things but we might be able to add value in other ways to the people that are in the best position to be driving these kinds of things. Like especially when we're looking at First Nations in any country, quite often the best people to be driving programs for First Nations people are First Nations people. Yeah. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't want some, you know, Western middle-aged person coming in and telling them what to do and how they yeah. should be doing it. Uh, but having that same person alongside uh, the right people to be running that and having them alongside for support uh, and to sometimes even, I guess, bridge the gap between one culture and a Western medical culture, it can be a really much more impactful position for an OT to be in rather than be this sort of overarching driving force trying to you know fix the world kind of thing i i think it's important that ot's i don't think we're very good at it because we i've said this in the past i feel like a lot of ot's have this impression that everybody needs an ot which i'm sorry Mm -hmm. if that hurts your feelings but that's a load of shit it's like saying everyone needs a speech (laughs) therapist yes okay there's probably someone that could benefit from a speech therapist in some way but 
not everyone needs a speech therapist. The same way not everyone needs an OT, not everyone needs a GP all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're not that special. There, I said it. Um, but we can have a big impact in supporting other people. And I, I don't feel... Sorry. No, yeah. And this is kind of, you know, going back to that first student placement I had or the second student placement I had where it was OT on the systems level, right? And so, like, how with my knowledge of the healthcare system as it is, having worked within it, and then, like, how can I support um, these Indigenous governments and organizations and the programming that they already have. Like I'm, I'm being invited to contribute and I'm very honored and grateful for that, but this programming would exist with or without me. Like it's, and it's been, um, you know, running without me for a very long time with much success. And so like I can bring a little OT flavor into it. And then also maybe I can see like, okay, you know, maybe within this structure, the fit, like we're looking at good fit, poor fit, that OT analysis um, how can we learn to support these things? But yeah, by no means am I trying to like reinvent any wheels um, or start things fresh up here. It's really about supporting the things that are already in place that are Indigenous led. That's really important for me, having supported um, folks who haven't benefited from Western systems up here. Like they need to be Indigenous led programs. Um yeah, and I I agree. Like, I think I see in a lot of kind of like OT chats or the Facebook comments or Instagram or whatever that um, I think because we like our our breadth of scope is so wide and we can kind of work in a lot of different areas um, that we feel like maybe we're capable of developing things. Um, in a lot of different areas, but really like what we're best suited to do uh, is support the things that are, that are already in place. And um, yeah, that's a good point that you make. And it's 100%, I'm 100% in agreement of that. Yeah. I think if there's something, cause the other thing I see is like, if there's no services at all running or the, anything that you can jump on board and support, that then OTs are like, oh, I've got to run something. Again, still not the case. You can still support other organizations that may be wanting to start a program. And there's no... no. Uh, I get the impression that a lot of OTs feel like that's almost secondary, like lower down the totem pole on terms of, I don't know, the p- social glory or something, uh, than actually running program yourself and i i don't i completely see it the opposite in that i actually feel like you're going to have a bigger impact um supporting other people it's the same way that when we work with individuals like we're not hopeful hopefully this is a touch wood hopefully we're not there supporting them for our own you know satisfaction where they're supporting them because they need support and we're helping them. And in the process of doing that, we're not going in there and telling them what they should do. We're working with them so that in a lot of cases, especially in a, a mental health context, a lot of the time we're supporting them to come up with the answers to what they want to do about whatever the, the situation is. And then we're supporting them to 
do whatever it is that they've worked out that they want to do about the situation. We're not there. We're kind of the GPS. We're not the driver. Um, and uh, it's the same way in supporting people running these programs. Like when we're, we're not the driver in a lot of instances, we're not the best person to be driving, uh, in a lot of those situations, but we can bring, our knowledge and experience of a healthcare system, of a council, of uh, whatever it is that may help that organization or that individual or whoever it is in order to throw out the best service that they mm-hmm. possibly can mm-hmm. with our help. Yep, 100% agree. So it's I'm excited to see uh, how, how you go with this program this on the land program it's it's something on the land when you even when you say that is something that i've heard a lot from a lot of the first nations people that i've worked with here in australia uh the the land is something that is very uh precious to their culture they're they're very connected to the land uh and a lot of the I guess conflict, whether it's physical or verbal uh, or psychological, I guess, uh, between sort of Western culture and First Nations culture in Australia is around the land and the fact that Westerners kind of came in and just took over the land and the land is so ingrained and so uh, linked with uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders uh, in Australia. So... Um, the land is when you're talking about on land um, in Australia, they would call it on country uh, programs. I, I that's something that I, I feel like resonates uh, massively for Australian OTs as yeah, well. Yeah, and it, you know it's or hope, hopefully does. Yeah, and it's cool because I feel like for the first time in a long time, you know, like being an OT in mental health, I think we can get really lost in like, what is our role? Like, what is our focus? And I had a prof in OT school, like her words will forever stay with me that just like, we are focused on occupation. Like that is, that's what sets us apart from social work. That's what sets us apart from um, PT, from counseling. But I think for the first time in a very long time, these projects have me refocusing on occupation in a way that I haven't because like, I am not the expert in any other area out there. Like I don't have the expertise in being on the land. I don't have the expertise in traditional knowledge. I don't have the expertise in like, you know, what it takes to build a fire. Like I would be totally hopeless, but I am the expert. (laughs) I am the expert in occupation, right? Like I, I do have that expertise. And so refocusing on, occupational therapy, occupational science, doing that in kind of like a two-eyed seeing way. So like, how do I incorporate um, Indigenous occupational knowledge? Because that exists. And it it's really, yeah, really yeah. helpful um, when contributing to this programming. But I, I feel like a real OT again. Like I'm really diving deep into um, the like focus of our profession, like the core of our profession. Um, whereas like, especially in a generalist position, but in, in my mental health career as well, sometimes the lines can get pretty blurred and things can get a little bit muddled in terms of like, what am I, 
doing in this situation? Like, what is, what is it that I'm focusing on? And maybe that's just me, um, in my experiences, but I, I do kind of feel for the first time that it's very clear what my role will be because it's very clear what I am not the expert on. So I'm excited. I'm excited to, no. to look at it and yeah, and we'll be like, we're, um, a colleague and I will be writing a paper on it. Just like, what is the very specific like OT rule here and how, how could we look at expanding this type of programming everywhere like what would it mean for OT to be um involved in this kind of like decolonization of health and wellness like can how can we contribute I feel like we can contribute quite a bit from our standpoint um as occupational therapists while also recognizing that um indigenous-led programming is of utmost importance 100% couldn't agree more and it just reminded me of like I did an episode I think it was episode 63 uh, around uh, unpacking yeah. colonized thinking uh, in an Australian healthcare setting uh, and one of the things Turpa said during or uh, one of the big sort of I guess light bulb moments uh, during that episode for me uh, was when Turpa was talking about how Indigenous Australians uh, ha- essentially their traditional way of living, like they have their own science, their, their own, uh, you know, social structure, their own, like all of these things that we think of as sort of Western constructs like science and that kind of stuff. Um, they have their own and yeah, it differs to ours. And, uh, one of the, like what you were saying about being able to light a fire, I remember saying to him, I'm like, I, you, could put me on the land and I might be able to survive for maybe I reckon three days. Um, I definitely wouldn't be the, you know, the genetically gifted sort of chosen Darwinian sort of breed that would be able to maintain living on the land for thousands and thousands of years. Um, Yeah. But sort of I think in thinking about the fact that a lot of indigenous cultures, not just uh, in Canada or Australia, but all around the world, have their own science, their own way of doing things, their own medicine, their own all of these things. And we are, yes, we are a profession that is quite embedded in occupational science, but occupational science isn't prescriptive. Uh, and I think the concepts of occupational science, yeah. when you're working in populations like that, need to be uh like like you described they need to be incorporated uh or sort of i guess merged with the the knowledge of the population that you're working with so you know like i said the social structures and I'm, i can only speak to the the experiences i've had in the populations that i've worked with but so in first nations people in australia their social structures are very very different to our social structures uh, in a Western society, in a lot of cases, I, I actually think they're, they're better, they're stronger um, social connections within their population uh, than there are in the majority of sort of Western cultures. They're very family orientated, um, and their OT's obsession with independence. Uh, I will probably do another, I'll probably do an episode about that at some point because it's becoming a pet peeve of mine. But OT's obsession with independence doesn't fit with, with that culture because they're, 
their their social structure, their family structure is so tight that it's it's a very uh, and I know this comes across as a negative connotation, but it's a very sort of codependent uh, structure. And it's it's the the thing is, it's definitely not a negative thing. It's just that our Western society, with our obsession with independence, sees codependence as a negative just by default, which is a whole other story that I'll get into at another time. But um, we need to be aware that for the majority, the, the issue with occupational science at the moment is that, yes, it can be uh, translated or adapted to look at other cultures, but the majority of the research out there is from within Western culture and uh, the majority of the teaching and the development of the concept of occupational science comes from a Western culture as well. So we just need to be aware that the current, essentially when we're looking at being evidence-based, the current research base for occupational science is predominantly skewed towards Western cultures, Western ideals, um, and that kind of thing. And like I said, it's not saying that it's not applicable or it can't be modified and be applicable to other cultures. But if you're just going off the evidence base and what the evidence base says, be aware that the evidence base is biased towards a Western culture at present. There are a lot of exceptions uh, and there's a lot more research going on that I even I know of uh, looking at occupational science in a variety of cultures, um, which is excellent and I think exactly what the profession needs because we need to become more aware that, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, what Jodie Booth would call it, a socially, what she called the socially dominant culture, um, but doesn't mean that it's applicable to everyone being just because it's you know the socially dominant culture so i don't know where i was going with that i went on a well, bit of a, a side rant but yeah i think what you're saying well, fits very yeah. well with with my experience and what i think as well yeah and i think like it's an interesting concept to think of um you know this and I know I've talked about two-eyed seeing a little bit, but it's really like an evolution of our understanding. We're not going back at all. And I want to be really mindful of not like othering Indigenous people or like tokenizing either, you know, their way of life because it is modern. Yeah. Like this is, everybody is existing in 2021, you know, within Canada, like, and really looking at merging these two ways of being is like an evolution. When you talk about, um, occupational science and you know very like applying it to various cultures or like making sure that it's inclusive of all cultures like what a beautiful evolution for our profession to be moving in a way where um we recognize that this western way of knowing and being can't be the be all end all like that is not um it's not serving us of Western descent, like, you know, settler descent, and it's not serving other people who are excluded from that narrative. And so um, it is kind of like a beautiful way of thinking of inclusivity, like for all, because it, this, you know, our, our systems as they are really do like they create this othering, they create this like, well, if you don't fit within, then like, that's your issue to sort out. Whereas if we're moving forward truly, 
then we are incorporating all different cultural lenses. We are incorporating different sciences that are not Western based. Um, and I think like to an extreme benefit for our profession, for healthcare in general, for society in general, um, because yeah, like these aren't, you know, when I think about traditional knowledge, I mean, tradition is within it, but it's not something that exists in the past. Like it is something that exists now, um, that is useful now that can, um, that we can use to contribute to our profession now and like moving forward the possibility of that is pretty exciting. Um, I think there's so much room for growth. Yeah. And I think, you know, relatively, I know that this often gets used as an excuse, but OT is a relatively or comparatively new profession compared to some other health professions. I think uh, working in sort of really remote areas for OTs is a, still a very new or relatively new mm-hmm. thing and I, I I feel like you're right we're, we're in this period now where the profession itself is exploding on terms of growth it's it's growing really rapidly it's growing into other areas really rapidly um, which hopefully will translate to an increase in sort of the research and evidence base um which will then broaden and uh, deepen the the general knowledge base of the profession itself so i i do think we're in a time right now where it's super exciting because the the profession itself is evolving right in front of us like even the change from when i graduated uh, 13 years ago now um to now is enormous like it's almost like a completely different profession um it's it's i find it very exciting as it sounds do you um yes yeah i i I just think it's an exciting time for the profession as much as you know i've had people say oh you do is whinge about stuff i'm like yeah but it's only little stuff the good stuff like the whole point is i bring on people under this podcast to highlight some of the amazing things that people are doing uh in the hope that more people will adopt those things and as a profession we we grow even more uh growth of the profession and the advancement of the profession is is something i'm extremely passionate about and uh yeah the yeah, that's uh, it's. Ex- I, would, I think you're right. I would say that- what, the the work that you're doing is exciting. You're right. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I don't. I think you maybe froze up for a second there. Um, I was just gonna say that, like, oh, okay. you know, this this podcast has been. Um, pretty instrumental for me, like working up here really remotely and coming from a place uh, when I was in the South, I was working amongst, you know, there were seven or eight of us OTs working in one city, you know, very focused on mental health, uh, very strong advocates for the profession together. And that was, that was great. And like such a solid foundation for me as an OT. Um, And then coming up here, I've been pretty, you know, removed. And like I said, the concept of what OT is and what we can do uh, is probably like back 50 years up here in terms of like 
healthcare provision. And so um, it was so cool to connect with you because I have been listening to your podcast um, and learning about, you know, the different things that OTs are doing all over the world and um, the ways that we can like advocate for our clients, that we can advocate for uh, our profession, that we can make changes at a system level. Like that's all really, really cool, exciting and inspiring stuff. And yeah, 100%. Yeah. You're right. I think I cut you off because I thought you'd finished, but I think it was just paused. Oh, no. Yeah, no. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's been really helpful. And like, I, you know, it's cool to, um, just listen to the things being talked about because you know there are different different areas of the profession people that you bring on to the show and um but I think like it gives OTs a really good sense of where things could be or where things are moving to um and how to advocate for themselves like you it's not often that in our clinical practice or daily lives we're learning how to uh, use the words that we need to use to advocate for ourselves within the profession to other healthcare providers, um, to the people that are making decisions about how OT is utilized. And I think it's been really helpful um, to have access to your podcast and listen to what other OTs are saying and doing um, in order to kind of move myself forward as an OT, um, challenge how the profession has been used in different areas because like whew, there's so much more potential um than has been realized i think especially here and and now it's being actualized right like i i think that taking that inspiration hearing that other ot's are doing it and then that gave me the confidence to say like you know i don't just have to exist within like i don't have to be a square peg in a round hole like i can find where i fit um, and advocate for that. And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think that's a that's an important message for all OTs, especially some of the new grads that are coming out and feeling a little bit lost because quite often the, I guess, the image of OT that's presented when you're at university can feel quite different to when you graduate and you get out and you actually start uh, looking into things, um, and, and it's important to just I, I can't stress enough. Like back yourself. Like you know more than you give yourself credit for. The system is far from perfect. I don't care what country you're in. I can say this almost universally that the system is far from perfect. We don't often. Yeah. We we are by default. Uh, again, in my opinion, before anyone jumps down my throat a non-medical profession trying to fit into a medical profession's world uh, in a lot of instances. Yes. And that by default makes us different, makes us unique, but it also, if you look at that as a negative, it's going to be a negative. I look at that as a positive, like we stand out, we are unique. That is the reason why if you're ever on a ward, like with a, a multi-D ward, the the clients, the patients, whatever they the they're labeled as in your part of the world, they love OTs because we're different and we get to do yeah. different things with them and we get to do what 
is generally very practical things with them that they can actually see the benefit of because we are working towards very real goals. Those goals are that individual's goals. Uh, and we are generally pretty good at communicating that kind of stuff in a language that they understand. So I, I encourage you, like, don't stress if you don't feel like you fit in or you, you are feeling a little bit lost because that's actually exactly where you need to be. So you will get used to that feeling that feeling does go away be confident in your profession be confident in your own skill set because just know that you are exactly where you need to be 100 percent. i love that bro that's awesome that got very deep and meaningful (laughs) it's good though i I mean i've definitely had that experience especially (laughs) after graduation or within the program where it's like, oh, and even up here, like, I mean, pretty established and confident in the work that I'm doing. And then like all of a sudden I'm having, um, you know, a conversation with a doctor about a client and just re- like forgetting that I am a biopsychosocial model professional working within a medical model and I'm not like feeling just really, um, yeah, like not confident in the things that I'm saying because like, what is not matching here? Like we are really talking about two different things and is it me? Like, do I just not really understand how things work? Um, And then actually, I think it was listening to one of your podcasts uh, later that week and talking about that we are like a profession, not within, like it's not a medical model profession. We are different. That I was like, oh, that's where that feeling is coming from. Um, and being able to take that confidence and advocate better for my client in that situation. Like that's really important. And to be like, I think the benefit of nobody knowing what (laughs) occupational therapy is, or like, you know, a few other, like the amount of, um, times I've had to kind of explain and people are really open to hearing about it, but like, actually I'm not a physio or actually like, that's not what I do. This is, you know, this is within my scope. Um, we generally are the experts in our profession. So even as a new grad or even like I've, I've mentored students who have been on placement with me um, where I've said like you're in a place where nobody really knows what OT is. Like you know best what OT is. So have that confidence and use it. Um, I guess it kind of works for to our advantage when other times it can be very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that frustration, you just have to put up with it. Unfortunately, that's you know, yeah. it's not pleasant, but uh frustration frustration's never killed anyone. So, I'm sure you'll be okay. That's right. <laughs> and the benefit of tolerating that and growing through it is far outweighs, you know, reacting to it and being you know, shutting down any kind of professional or clinical relationship that you might be building at the time so just yeah it's gonna be okay like i said you are where you're meant to be if you have faith in that you can tolerate anything so yeah do what you do what you need to do and you be the be the ot you you never quite know you're gonna get all 
motivation. <laughs> That's right. And you can end up working at the ends of the earth and, uh, you know, changing, changing the OT game there. Like I never, ever thought one day I'm going to move to the Arctic and, you know, quit my job during a global pandemic and start some self-employment and see how that works out. Um, <laughs> that's not, that's not on my list of to do's, but I think, um, you know, I've got a lot of passion, you know, both about our profession, but also how people should be able to access healthcare, how people should be able to access, um, wellness and, uh, yeah, like it's okay. Like use that passion, like see where it takes you, take the risks. Um, yeah, I do. I do love OT. Like I, I've seen it work in, in like pretty hard circumstances, you know, with folks that have um, led really, really difficult lives and just to have a little bit of um, a different approach and like, okay, well, why don't we do something together that's fun for you to do? Like to be able to walk alongside folks um, up here, like the, the counseling staff isn't able to meet with people outside of the hospital. Like they always have to meet in the, their offices. And they're so envious of me when I get to do like walking sessions or, you know, go out on a boat with someone or, you know, meet somebody for cooking or whatever. And it's like that, that act of doing when it's what the person that you're working with wants to truly do, um, it can be pretty awesome. That's awesome. And that's the, uh, a perfect note to, to leave it on, I feel. Um, so if people yeah. are wanting to uh, check out your social media and stuff, whereabouts could they find you? <laughs> I would I would ask that people don't have high expectations of my social media, but uh, my handle at Instagram is <laughs> I post I post very irregularly, um, especially like internet access is not always optimal. But at Arctic underscore OT, um, that's where I'm at. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for coming and, and chatting and enlightening me to so many things that I'm, my mind's a bit sort of mush at the moment. Uh, I'm still trying to get my head around the whole like sunlight <laughs> thing. But, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for yeah coming and having a chat and, and sharing your very the very unique environment that, that you're currently operating in. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Brock. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.